This is Mental Selling. This is the sales podcast for people that are dedicated to making difference in customers' lives and have a purpose beyond just a paycheck. I'm your host, Will Milano. Let's get right into the show. Who owns the customer experience? Is it marketing, sales, customer service, or is it each and every customer-facing person in your organization? And how do you care for it throughout the customer relationship? I'd like to read you a quote. It says, customer loyalty is not about a lifetime. It's about the next time, every time. That's from our guest on this episode of Mental Selling, customer service and customer experience expert, keynote speaker and author, Shep Hyken. He's the chief amazement officer for Shepherd Presentations. Shep, welcome and thank you so much for talking to us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with this. You contributed something recently for a publication around customer experience expectations and and predictions for the year ahead. And I think it ties in really well with what we want to discuss today. You said that the employee experience will match the importance of customer experience. Can you expand on that? And why does the employee experience have such a big effect on customer experience? And actually, I'm not so sure it should match it. In some cases, it may even be better. Uh, A long time ago, I came up with this idea. I call it the employee golden rule. Now, we all grew up learning what the golden rule was, right? Do unto others Mm -hmm. as you would want done unto yourself. And uh, actually, somebody else said, well, how about he who has the gold makes the rules? That's not the golden rule we're looking for. But what we are looking for is something similar to that. And therefore, I came up with this idea, do unto employees as you want done unto your customer, if not even better, because really the experience starts internally inside the organization and you can't expect to treat somebody one way and have them if a manager, leader, supervisor, boss, whatever is treating an employee a certain way. They can't expect that employee to be any different than the way they're being treated. So I think it's important to set the tone on the inside. At the very beginning in the introduction, you said, who owns the customer experience? And you started listing all these different groups. Is it frontline people? Is you know all the different? Here's my philosophy is that it's owned by everybody. Everybody has a stake in it. Everybody has the opportunity to participate in it and to make it right. If you're not serving directly the customer, and it doesn't matter if we call them customer clients, doesn't matter. If you're not dealing directly with one of them, you're supporting somebody that is, or you're part of the process that is going to impact that experience. Even people who think they have nothing to do with the customer. They never see the customer and they never talk to the customer. They work in a warehouse and all they do is they pull things off a shelf and put them in a box and then it gets shipped out. But what happens if they don't put everything in the box? What happens if they put it in the wrong way, don't wrap it and it breaks in shipment? Whose fault was that? Well, it was that person in the warehouse, yet they have a great impact on the customer experience. And then what happens is customer gets their box, they open it up, it's not right, it's broken. What do they do? They call a phone number, then the person has to go do the research. They got to check. And it's all of a sudden, it costs almost more to take care of that customer than the profit that they're going to make on the customer. Right. Or it could be billing and finance, right? The way that customers experience the way they're billed and and invoiced for your services. Same thing. That, That has an effect on the customer experience. Anytime the experience goes awry, it costs the company money. Even if it's a quick fix, an easy fix, somebody had to respond to the customer and take moments to do so. Now, 
the mm-hmm. perfect company, I've never found one. Then nobody ever has no mistakes, no problems. There are some companies that are pretty close to it, but they they all have systems in place to deal with these things, to get them taken care of to the point where, and to the quote that you mentioned earlier, where I said, loyalty isn't about a lifetime, it's about the next time. That's what this is all about. What am I doing right now to make sure the customer comes back the next time? If it's something that's normally done, are they receiving what they're supposed to be receiving on time? Are they getting the right correspondence, the right communication? All of that goes toward creating confidence. However, when that customer finally interacts with one of our people for any reason, it could be sales, it could be service, it could be just happenstance. We have an opportunity at that moment to say uh, and act and do in such a way that the customer says, I'm glad I do business with them. This is why I will come back next time. I wrote a book titled, I'll Be Back, How to Get Customers to Come Back Again and Again. And that's what it's all about. What am I doing right now to get that customer to say, I'll be back? And definitely not um, taking advantage or having presumptions that because you've acquired them as a customer that you've done everything right and that, that they won't leave. So there's an old saying out there. My friend, Dr. Larry Baker, who's passed away a while ago, used to say the most abused customer is the sold customer. We we do everything we can. It's like dating. We do everything we can. And then there's this little honeymoon and then the honeymoon's over. You're now a customer. And this is how we really are. That is not the experience that we want to provide our customers. Yeah. Are you continuing to cultivate that relationship? And like you said, it belongs in every single corner of the organization. Um, So this alludes to the next thing I wanted to ask you about is I found uh, something that you do that's really interesting every year. You call it's called the Achieving Customer Amazement Study. Yes. And so I came across the 2022 version and there were three compelling findings. All right. I'm going to pull out my my uh, my study because you're going to ask me about a number and I'm probably I'm going to ask you about I'm going to ask you about three numbers, but they they all sort of overlap. I'm going to read them for for uh, benefit of the audience. So the three in, really interesting numbers were 78% of customers w- would be willing to go out of their way to go to a company that has better customer service. Next is that 74% of customers would switch to a competing brand if they found out that they provided a better customer experience. And especially important for anybody in sales that's listening to this, 58% of customers believe that great customer service is more important than price. Well, let's talk about and put on my glasses for this one. 78% of customers are willing to go out of their way to do business with a company that provides better service, which means I'm not suggesting, and the next stat is about switching. This is not about switching, but basically are we providing the experience that customers would say it, it, the service and experience is more important than when we say go out of their way, let's do something logistically out of their way. Would I drive an extra two miles to this place rather than the competitor because of the way I'm being treated and, and the experience I have? So that's, that's kind of a metaphor or an example. But wh- whatever extra effort the customer has to go through, in order to enjoy the experience that we can provide. And it might mean, you know what, they're not the easiest company to do business with. They have a longer process, but you know what? They're the only one I've ever done business with. Everything works. It always shows up on, I get follow-up. You know, so what extra effort does a customer have to make? Great service negates any extra effort in, in many cases. 
74% of customers would switch to a competing brand, not because the customer was giving bad service, but because they found out there's a better opportunity elsewhere. This is like cocktail conversation at a party where somebody's talking about, I don't know, their insurance person and they're not complaining. And then this person next to them says, oh, well, you know what? Let me tell you about my insurance company that I work with and the people there, they are the most unbelievable. And all of a sudden you hear these accolades and you go, huh, yeah, I should do business with them. So here's the problem. The person who's thinking maybe I should do business with someone else, the experience that they're having probably isn't strong enough to hold them. It may be acceptable, hence right. it may be satisfactory, which means it's just average. It's okay. It's fine. It's nothing exceptional. And given the opportunity to find a place that will provide a better experience, even slightly better, the customer might switch. By the way, I know this is kind of a, a running down a rabbit hole, if you will, but I wrote an article many years ago that still has traction. And when I say many years ago, it's like 20 years ago, I wrote this article and people still like it. I refer to the dangerous customer. And that is the customer who you don't hear from. They do business with you, but they never make a comment to you. You don't know whether they're happy, glad, mad, sad. They're just doing business with you. And then one day they, and you wonder, well, they never complain. No, they just found a place that was better to do business right. with. And we got to be very And careful. whose responsibility is that, right? It's not, it, the onus is not on the customer to come to you to tell you how you're doing. The onus is on you to ask them, right? Yeah, ex ex exactly. And, and we can't, the silent customer is the dangerous customer is what I'm trying to say. And then your last stat that you mentioned, 58% of customers believe customer service is more important than price. By the way, what we did in our survey, and we do this every year, we ask it in two completely different places and we ask it slightly differently, but it, it gives us what we're looking for is that we want that answer to be within one or 2% to know that it's valid. And this is one of those questions where we ask a second way to yep. make sure that we get the same answer. So I can't remember if we asked, is customer service more important than price? Uh, and then maybe later on, would you be willing to pay a little more if you knew you would get better customer service? Those numbers should match up and they do quite amazingly so. And here's the point. It doesn't make price irrelevant. It makes it less important. Many, many years ago, Lou Stearns, who I believe is still a professor at Kellogg Business School up in Chicago, worked with IBM as they were rolling out personal computers. And, and he talked about this list that they created, the 20 reasons why you would want to have IBM computers. And they took price and they said, our goal is to get price to be in the lower half of those 20, ideally at the lowest possible place of least importance because we're doing such an amazing job with the quality of our product, the quality of our service, our responsiveness to what we do, our maintenance, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, wow, that is a really great exercise. Now you don't need to come up with 20, but what if you came up with 10? Why would a customer do business with you? One of them should be because there, our price is reasonable, but what if we were able to push price down to what was less important? Guess what happens? All of a sudden, we start to win over these customers because we are amazing at what we do, not just because we're a great price. Because the moment you're competing on price, whoever has a lower price has the opportunity to take business away from you. And it's a very dangerous place to play. Yeah, you become a commodity, right? Yep. So building on that, do you think salespeople do enough when they're negotiating, working with potential clients 
to talk about what the post-sale customer service, customer experience will be? Because if that's such a differentiator, maybe salespeople aren't talking about it enough. Well, I would like to think that they are. And there are some amazing salespeople that do exactly that. They want you to understand what you're getting, not just the product, but the company that you're buying it from. And what can you expect post-sale? Are you familiar with Joey Coleman? Vaguely. Okay, well, you need to get him on this show because okay. he needs to I'll talk to you about the first 100 days. Because after a customer makes a decision to buy with you, and again, this depends on what you sell and what you do. The next step is to validate that customer's decision and make sure that they know in their minds that they made the right decision. And it isn't just because they feel good when they walked away from saying, yes, I want to do business with you. It's what happens next week with the confirmation. I remember an investment that I made one a financial advisor said, this is a really good investment. And as soon as I invested with them, I started to receive all this interesting information, pictures of the property that we had invested in, step by step along the way. And I thought to myself, these guys are good. I was excited about investing with them, but now I'm sure I made the right investment. And that's what we yeah. want our customers to experience, that confidence. So- yeah, I know I went down out. a little bit different tangent, but I think it's worth no, it. no, but it's a it, very important points, and I think it's it's as you're saying, it, you've got to pull back the curtain and show this customer the full depth and breadth of the organization that's behind the product and what they're going to get. So one of the questions we love to ask clients when we have sometimes it's a training, sometimes we're in an executive meeting where we're trying to understand how we can help them, and the question is, why should somebody do business with you instead of your competition? And I say, there's one answer that you absolutely, well, actually, I'll give you two answers we hear, but one I say you're not allowed to, to say. You're not allowed to say our service is better than theirs unless there's a proof of some kind. And proof would be like in the, uh, like in the hospital business, there's press Ganey ratings, which is healthcare where they rate you. And part of mm -hmm. that is the experience. Maybe you won the J.D. Power Award or the Malcolm Baldwin Award, you can brag about that, but recognize this. Your competitors are saying they have great service too. Your competitors right. are also saying our people make a difference, just like we would say our people make a difference. But what is it that you really do that's different? Is it a process? Is there something that differentiates your product from someone else? Or if you can't differentiate the product, the process, the experience, it's got to be different and it's got to be proven. Yeah, it's got to be, go beyond table stakes, things like that. It's like if, it's like if a salesperson shows the customer a, a bunch of logos of other companies that they work with, right? Who really cares? Because your competitors... Well, it's social proof. It's not, that's not going to truly differentiate you other than to give the customer some level of confidence where you hire somebody outside to help with their marketing. And we talked about all of the logos that are on my website. And the new website that's coming out, I go, well, all that is is social proof. These are the clients that have trusted me to come in and deliver a keynote speech at their meeting or have our trainers go out and deliver a customer service and experience training program for them. We want that. I mean, that's all it is, is social proof. The thing is, social proof doesn't mean anything if you don't deliver on the expectation that you've created with that social right. proof. Right. You've got to, you've got to live up to it. You know, so, a, a long time ago, I started talking to somebody about what a brand is and the definitions of a brand and the different uses of a brand and the way the word is used. And one of my favorites, uh, and I don't know if it's his for sure, Jeffrey Hazlett said, a brand is a promise delivered. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So 
what a lot of people think is you, you create this promise and the best brands do create a promise. They create a feeling that you're going to get, uh, I'm sorry, good brands do that. The best brands deliver on that promise and right. make that customer realize they made the right decision. And guess what happens? It's so much easier to get to come back again and again if you keep delivering on what the expectation is. Yeah, we, we talk about that a lot where you see companies that put their their mission, their vision, their company values on their website, or it's in the hallway of, of their headquarters. But how are you actually taking those things and having them live through each and every employee every day? Because right. otherwise it's just talk, right? Yeah. You've got a brand promise. You've got to activate that brand promise. By the way, interesting yeah. mission value statements like that. We go into the boardroom and we'll sit down with the C-suite and other leadership members. And I'll say, I'm going to throw a question out there. Raise your hand if you have the answer. Who can recite the vision statement, the mission statement, the value statement? Hardly anybody ever raises their hand. And there's a problem with that. You may know it. You may understand it. You may think that you live it. But if you can't really articulate it exactly the way it is, it doesn't count. So we always suggest the idea of coming up with an internal mantra, if you will, that's one sentence long that everybody can remember. And it, if you can do it in 12 words or less, that's ideal. I've, I've had clients that do it in three words. And it's not like, um, like I see it, the XYZ difference. That, that isn't it. No, it's something specific. My favorite is the Ritz Carlton's line. They call it their credo. We're ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. It's not outwardly known. They don't post it everywhere as a brand promise, but many mm. people do know what it is outside, especially if they're in my world. It's available to find if you just do a little internet search. But what is that? It's nine words long. And what's cool about it is you can ask yourself the question, am I acting like a lady or gentleman serving a lady or gentleman? One of my favorite examples has nothing to do with service or sales or anything, but it is an internal mantra that the Beatles came up with it. It's three words long and it is bigger than Elvis. That was what they wanted to do. And that was like their North star. That was the question they always ask is this song. If we record it going to help make us bigger than Elvis. If we take this tour to Hamburg, Germany, which is one of the mm -hmm. big breakout tours that they had way back in the day, is this going to help make us bigger than Elvis? And that was their North star. So having something so simple that you can easily remember and play off of that to say, am I acting in a way that's delivering on this mantra? I think that's very important to do. So that's my homework assignment for everybody listening to this show is to create your mantra. And make it personal for yourself, depending on where you sit in the organization. If you're a salesperson, sales leader, customer service, you know, one of the things, obviously for our organization, Integrity Solutions, one of the thing that's interesting to us is that more than I forget what the exact number was, but more than 50% of S&P 500 companies have integrity as one of their company values. And so one of the things that we always ask is, what does that specifically mean? How do you specifically articulate and live that versus, again, just having it be something that's on your website or on the wall somewhere? Yeah. And to your point, you said everybody should have a, a personal mantra or a personal statement like that. I don't think you... I think the statement needs to be consistent throughout an entire organization, but your responsibility and how you respond to that statement and act on that statement is going to be individualized. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's 
we've we've touched on on training, and I think it's interesting in context of customer service. But would you say that does customer service training tend to get shortchanged in organizations relative to things like broader leadership development programs or even sales training? It seems like it often becomes an afterthought. And based on everything that we're saying, the exact opposite should be true, right? All right. So let me give you, uh, you're right. In a sense, the exact opposite should be true. Today, there's all kinds of, well, let's go back even 10 plus years ago when Forrester and Gartner and all these companies were predicting, McKinsey said, customer experience will be the company's biggest investment that they make by 2020. Mm -hmm. And today we're seeing that has absolutely become true. Uh, companies are spending more and more time investing in the experience. Customer service is part of that experience. So customer experience is everything that the customer gets. So much of what's important, however, is the interaction that we have with the company, be it through automation or people to people, human to human. So when it gets to the human to human level, the experience we want to create is driven from an overarching term, we'll call it customer service. And it doesn't matter if you're in sales, if you're actually in service, but it's you're serving somebody this way. So training, that's what it's about. It's a soft skill. You do. You even said when we, before we started our interview that about 8% or 10% of the work that you do is in the customer service soft skill training. The rest of it is probably sales type training. Interestingly, sales training, you pay a lot more for. It's much easier to say, I've got um, a potential superstar sitting across from me that needs a little training. Last year, they sold a hundred of whatever. I know that if I train them, they're going to sell 125. So I'm going to invest a little bit of money, which by the way, that little bit might be a thousand, two thousand dollars to get them to understand how to sell a thousand and twenty five units versus just a, or a hundred and twenty five just uh, versus a hundred. Okay. Oh. So that is a thousand dollars seems like nothing. But if I said, let's spend a thousand dollars on the customer service skill. And by the way, we want to do this for everybody in your company. People would say you're nuts. So that's why I know like our soft skills training, our customer, we have something called the customer focus. Our online training is really, it's for everybody. And it costs as little as five or $6 a person per month to engage. So we're not going to, and I know if, if I had 25 salespeople in front of me, my clients might spend $2,000 a person to get them trained. But if mm -hmm. I have 25 salespeople in front of me and I say, let's do customer service training, they won't spend $50 a person. Okay. Well, and part of the vicious cycle is that some companies will say, well, but we have such high turnover on our customer service team. So they don't think it's worth it or that they'll get the ROI from it. Right. And therein and it's the a reality is. When the reality is, right, the reason or one of the main reasons that they have retention issues and turnover issues is they're not training them. And they're not treating them right. Uh, so right. training is, is great. For, there's a reason they call it training and development. Yes. People want to be developed. They want to learn new skills. They want to be, uh, become better at skills that they are okay at and would rather be more proficient at. They want that. And if a company helps them develop new skills and makes them a better person. The employee loves that. If you treat them poorly and still do that, it's not going to make any difference, but it's, it's the whole package. Employees don't leave because there's a better opportunity for a dollar an hour more. No, employees leave because most of the time, the way they're treated, 
salary is important, but it's not. It's like price. What can we do to push price down on the list? Let's make an experience at our company so good that people won't leave here because somebody's throwing a, a 5% increase. And granted, for some people, that's going to be real important. They need to make ends meet. Maybe they're struggling. So they are going to go to the job that pays the most and they'll suffer and be willing to do so. I love talking about my kids. My daughter has a great opportunity. She's been offered an incredible job for a much higher salary than what she makes. And we talk, are you happy right now? Yes. Will the extra salary, what will that really do? Are you struggling in any way financially? Not really. Okay. So money is really off the table. Can this company offer you a better experience than what you currently have? And I don't know. I said, well, then you're really taking a gamble. Are you going to go to work for the money? You're going to go work for the experience. If you're making enough and they're meeting your needs, keep in mind, the experience might be more important than the dollars. There's a great company. I refer to them often. And I've written about them in, in one of my books, The Amazement Revolution. Brian Keeley, who just retired as the CEO of Baptist Health South, one of the large and successful healthcare organizations, hospitals, medical centers, that type of thing. He said, we want to create something called destination employment, which means when you come to work here, you will never want to go anywhere else because we treat you that way, that well. And guess what happens? You treat the patients better. You treat the people you work mm -hmm. with better because of the way we treat you. And it's just yeah. a, a great example. And I love the term destination employment. You wouldn't want to go. I wrote a book called Amaze Every Customer Every Time. I used Ace Hardware as one of the examples. And there is some dealerships, some owners of stores that have created an incredible family-like culture in their store. Now, retail stores, very small compared to some of these larger businesses, but they might have 40, 50 employees. Some of them have less, but there is one that people, there is a waiting list. For, <laughs> it's like people have put in their application. They check back every six months. Do you have any openings? Do you, I want to work for you. Well, the yeah. only way you're going to get to work here is if somebody passes away, because that's the only way there's going to be an opening. That's a pretty good place to be, don't you think? That is. It's a really good place to be. <laughs> yeah. So two more things that I want to be able to ask you about in our time together. And one of the things that we see is that companies seem to want to address the customer experience through more and more AI, artificial intelligence. Ah, yeah. Um, this is a big hot topic right now. Right? It's a hot topic. They think that that's the answer to everything. When we see and hear that all the time, that it's the human connection, and you talked about that a little bit earlier, that's the human connection that customers crave, and that having better actual human discussions is what people that work in contact centers and on customer service teams feel like they should be having more. So... If people on the front lines are, are talking about that, they're overwhelmed with how many tech stack tools are being thrown at them. They're overwhelmed by AI. They want to have more human discussions with customers. Where's the disconnect with all these things, the sales enablement tools, the customer service AI? I don't want to say that you're wrong, but you said something in there that I would contradict. And that is mm -hmm. that they want to have more human to human conversations. And I say they want to have more human human conversations when it's necessary. AI, artificial intelligence, chatbots, a digital experience of giving customer support is very, very powerful when done the right way. When done the wrong way, it's miserable. And that's when customers say, I just want to talk to somebody and the company has to let that happen. So there's this balance between digital experiences and, and human to human experiences. 
But let's take a look at a great example that you may not even realize happened to you over the years. And uh, do you ever take a trip, Will? Do you ever go anywhere where you have to get in an airplane and fly somewhere? Oh, yes. Okay. Frequently, yes. When's the last time you called the airline to make a reservation? Very good point. Yes. It's been years ago. Probably. A long time. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, unless you're taking some crazy trip where you need some help because it's a complicated itinerary. But, you know, you said you live in the Boston area. If you're coming to visit me yeah. in St. Louis, you go on American Airlines, Southwest Airlines, website, Delta, whatever. And you look and you put in, I want to go here. I want to go on this date. They tell you what times you choose it. And they tell you how much it's going to cost. Boom, it's done. Years ago, the airlines came up with that and people pushed back. They said, no, no, we want to talk to the reservationists. That's customer service. But they didn't realize, no, customer service is creating a great experience, regardless of whether it's digital or human to human. If a, a, a friend of mine said, I just had the best experience on Delta Airlines. I got all the way to the plane. I didn't have to talk to one employee. And I laughed. I goes, are they that bad? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. They're that good. What do you mean? He says, because they created this system where you go online and you book your ticket, you get your boarding pass, you do it all and you'd have to deal with the lines at the airport. They've really created a great system. He also knew that if there was a problem, he could pick up the phone or walk over to a gate agent and he would get help. So it was okay. So there's yeah. this balance. So here's what the airlines did. They said, we want to give you an incentive to try it. We're going to give you 500 extra miles. $25 off your ticket or whatever, if you would try the system. And when you did, you said, you know what? It's easy. I get it. It's intuitive. Same thing with boarding passes. To get you to print your boarding pass from home. Now, today, we just put it on our phone. But back in the day, you would print it at home, bring it, would save you time at the airport. And if you did this, they gave you an extra 250 or 500 points to try it. It was a short-term incentive. But once you did, that's what I'm talking about. You can create great systems. You should have a frequently asked question knowledge base on your website, depending upon the type of business. You should have AI chat type of experiences for mm -hmm. simple questions. But there should always be an easy way to get to a human when needed. And by the way, when a customer has a problem with anything or a question, what is the first thing they do? They look for your 800 number. Or, or any phone number. And where do they go for that? Your website. Exactly. So before they're even talking to you, they're already involved in a digital experience. Right. So, so uh, if in the corner of every website, it should say contact. Sometimes the number can be there, but they click on it, open it up, and there it is, your phone. Okay. Like you said, it, it, yeah, like you said, it, this is, it's, an, it's not an either or scenario. It's a balancing act. And you're right. There's there's a ton of great self-service that can happen and chatbots can be value-added if they're done the right way. But like you said, when somebody does want to talk to a human, because a lot of customers do, are you making it easy for them? It drives me crazy. I've, I've had it sometimes where you try to find that number and good luck finding it. Yeah. it's and, and they do that on purpose sometimes because they don't want to talk to you. You get the point. That starts out sure. digital almost 100% of the time. And if you can keep them on the digital channel and give them what they want, that's great. One of the things we teach our people to, or our clients to do is when they could have gone digital, but they chose to go human to human, say, by the mm -hmm. way, did you know that all this information was on the website? You got a moment? I'd love to, to walk you through so that the next time you don't have to look up our number, wait on hold. I don't have to authenticate you. You could do this all yourself. And most yeah. people are willing to say, yeah, that's fine. And by the way, if somebody says, you know what? No, 
I just like picking up the phone and call. It's cool too. I'm just trying to save you a little time. I look forward to hearing from you the next time. That's cool. I'm all right with that, but at least try to train the customer to use the digital option. So the last thing uh, in our time together, I'd like to get your perspective about is to talk a little bit about personalization. Every customer wants personalization today, but that often means different things to different people. So from your perspective, what does good personalization look like, both from the standpoint of the selling and buying experience, as well as customer service? Sure. Uh, Remember the TV show Cheers? Remember what their theme song was? You don't have to remember the name of the song, but you remember what they, it's, you want to go to a place where Where, everybody everybody knows your name, knows your name. Right, right, right. So for the young people out there, check it out. It's a great sitcom from back in the (laughs) seventies and eighties. Anyway, that's what that, that to me, that's the, a metaphor for what personalization is and uh, using your name, by the way, is very powerful, but there's so many other ways to personalize. Personalization comes at different levels. There's macro personalization and micro personalization. And, and it, when you get right down to the detail, what's the difference? Well, macro is I can segment my customers into five, six, seven different groups. Okay. Maybe I sell, uh, well, I'll give you the easiest. I have a men's line and a woman's line. Sure. And most of the time, a man's going to buy a man's and women are going to, but they cross over. That's cool. That's fine. Okay. But there's an example. You've now segmented it into two types of customers. But if you're somebody like Nike that has running shoes, walking shoes, golf shoes, soccer shoes, this kind of shoes, wrestling shoes, and then you also have apparel, you can segment your customers into how they buy. Now that's macro personalization because you can target them with messaging and talk mm-hmm. to them about what they're interested in. Yeah. It's micro segmentation, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's segmentation. That's what I used there before. And it's, it's creating personas, but micro personalization yeah. is actually individualization. That's where I'm talking to you. I'm looking at your record and I said, Hey, I noticed that the last time you called, you asked me about this. I just want to make sure that we're, you're, everything there is taken care of. Great. And based on what you've been buying from us, can I make a suggestion for what you buy next? That's a truly individualized approach. It's sales technique, no doubt about it. But by in, by your making that customer understand you know who they are and what's important to them. So personalization yeah. is really important. And companies yeah. more and more are finding ways to do it. Many times they're using data, the customer's data. So the customer has to be willing to give you that data in order for you to be able to personalize to them. And the name is a form of data, their email address, their phone number for texting, anything that that customer is willing to give you is their data. How you approach that data, make sure it's secure, make sure you are managing it the right way and you don't abuse it, is gonna build trust with that customer. Trust is so important in getting that customer to go all the way back to what we talked about at the very beginning of our interview, is to get the customer to come back the next time every time. And, and if they Absolutely. trust me and they know what the experience is going to be, they know that when I give them my information, they're not going to abuse it. That's trust. That builds rapport. That builds repeat business, which hopefully turns into loyal business. Right. And building trust with a customer never ends. It starts on the front end and it goes, it has to continue throughout that customer relationship. Even beyond and, the first hundred days that my friend Joey Coleman talks about. Absolutely. Well, well beyond it. And, and then the other thing you alluded to, which we could get into an entire different discussion about, and I'd love to at some point, is that idea of the personalization of how do you effectively give suggestions and recommendations to existing customers 
based on what you know of them. And depending upon the size of the company, I just want to add one other thought. If your company's huge and you can uh, say, wow, look at this customer. And the computer tells me this customer is just like 2,000 other customers acting the exact same way, buying in the same exact patterns. You can predict with incredible accuracy the next question the customer is going to ask, the next product the customer needs and hopefully will buy. So you yeah. can start using that information done the right way to make that customer know that you know them and they want to continue to do business with you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mental Selling. If you're curious to hear what we'll talk about next, stick around to listen to a sneak peek. I guess how you could define mindfulness. It's about being in the present moment, being aware of what's going on around you and understanding what's happening in the present moment without judgment. And then I would add, so that you can make choices and decisions from that space. And I think if we understand mindset as a concept, that's one thing, but then the important thing for us to understand is how it is really helpful for us as salespeople in our everyday work, in our everyday life and our everyday experiences. Thank you for listening, and I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Mental Selling. Please make sure that you're subscribed, and as always, leave us a comment or a rating. Share it with your networks. You'll get more content like this on our website at integritysolutions.com. Until next time, I'm Will Milano with Integrity Solutions. Thanks very much again for being with us.